There's a title for you this morning. Hope in death. Hope in death. Luke 24, 13 to 35. If I say to you hope in death, it probably sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, doesn't it? Hope and death don't seem to go together. They don't seem to fit right into the same sentence. And it certainly was like that for the disciples. If we back up a little bit in Luke 23, 49, it says, But all those who knew Him, including the woman who had followed Him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So there's a whole crowd of disciples and women and others. They're all standing there and they're watching these things. What things are they watching? They're watching the death of Messiah. They were watching their hopes nailed to a tree. As they stood there watching Christ die on a cross, it was an unfathomable scene. It was incomprehensible. It was discombobulating. Those disciples and women and others, they were staring in utter disbelief and despair as they saw their hopes crucified on a cross. And you hear something of that despair in the conversation between Cleopas and his friend, which we'll come to in Luke 24, 21. As they're on the road, they say to each other, almost in despair, you've got to feel it, but we had hoped, we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. For them, the death of their Messiah shattered the hope of Israel's redemption. I say to you this morning that we are very tempted to believe that suffering and death shatters our hopes and dreams. Suffering seems to send up our hopes and dreams in a puff of smoke. Such dreams we had for our marriage, but it ended. Such, dr- such hopes we have for our children, and they leave like prodigals, and we're never sure if they're coming back. Such hope in that relationship, but it's ended. Such hope in that job, and I'm made redundant. Such hope in that business, and it collapses. Such hope in our health, and then we get that diagnosis that we never want to hear. Such hope in that leader, it turns out he's living a double life. Such hope in that church, and it splits like the proverbial reed. And then there is death. And he's dead. For the disciples, the death of Jesus was the death of hope. Take a look if you back up again in Luke 23, 48. When all the people who had gathered there to witness the sight, talking about the death of Jesus, when they saw what had taken place, they beat their breasts and they went away. When the news about the death of a loved one comes, you beat your breast in agony, don't you? No. 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 How how can it be? It's not supposed to be this way. Death smashes hope. So we think. So we feel. So we believe. But here's what the disciples couldn't yet see. They couldn't see hope in death. They saw hope in life. They saw hopelessness in death. 
They saw dreams dissipating in death. They saw hope vaporizing in crucifixion, beating their breath in despair. But it's not how Jesus saw death. And it's not how Jesus saw His death. Again, as we back up a little into Luke 20. I'm going the wrong way. As we back up into Luke chapter 22, we find Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. It's the, it's the eve of His crucifixion. And look how we are told that He prays. He says, Father, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And Luke is the only gospel that tells us that as Jesus prayed in anguish, He prayed so earnestly, and that the sweat that came out of His brow was like drops of blood that was falling to the ground. How could Jesus endure such anguish? How could He endure such suffering? How could He go to the cross where He knew He would suffer the wrath of God on sin? How? How could He do that? The answer is because He had hope in death. And the answer is succinctly put to us in Hebrews 12.2. For the joy set before Him he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then went to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. You could look at that and well read it like this. For the hope set before Him, He endured the cross and scorned its shame. Jesus could endure such suffering and death because He saw hope in suffering and death. He saw resurrection in death. He didn't see death in death. So let's go with Jesus on the road to Emmaus under the first of my four headings. The meeting with Jesus on the road. Luke 24, 13-24. You've got your Bible, you notice two disciples are on the way to Emmaus. We're told that it's about 11 kilometers from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Verse 13, they're discussing all that they have seen at the cross, verse 14. And we know from verse 22 that they're also discussing the discombobulating words of the woman that said that Jesus is alive and his body is no longer in the tomb. The disciples did not believe that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead because hope had died in His death. So they believed. So they felt. So they thought. Look at how they received the words of the woman in Luke 24, 11. But they did not believe the woman because their words of resurrection seemed to be like nonsense. Words of resurrection seemed like nonsense to them, not just because for them there is no hope in death, but because the testimony of woman is just not believed. Sadly today, not much has changed. Even in some churches today, the testimony of woman is somewhat disregarded. Now they're on the road. And I want you to imagine the conversation between the disciples going something like this. As, they, as Cleopas and friend are chatting to each other. It goes something like this. Can you, believe that the, can you believe that Jesus was crucified? 
Can you believe that, 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 that our, our leaders and the rulers, the Romans, can you believe they took him and they, and they crucified him? But what happened to the body? Who took it? Oh, those women are talking nonsense about resurrection as they usually do. Surely, surely the gods took the body. Oh, that doesn't make sense. Surely the Jewish readers, the Jewish leaders, maybe they stole the body, but that doesn't make sense at all. And, and these two disciples, they're completely bumfuzzled, not just by the death of Jesus on a cross, but by the empty tomb as well. You've got your Bible, notice verse 15. We, we notice that Jesus uh, <laughs> joins the convo. He, he keeps his identity secret, verse 16. And though he knows their discussion, he asks them, what are they discussing? And notice from verse 17 to 24 then, these two disciples, they pour out their whole heart of shattered dreams and hopes to this mysterious stranger. And if you wanted to sum up in two words what these disciples said to this stranger, it would be this. Surely not. Surely not. When I had to phone someone recently to tell them that their father had died, the groaning on the other side of the phone was, surely not. Surely not. Surely not. Verse 19, the one so powerful in word and deed, crucified by our rulers and priests, surely not. The one who had promised to redeem Israel, surely not. The one who promised to redeem Israel, strung up like a common criminal on a cross, surely not. But you notice that Jesus comes alongside them and He listens to them. You notice that, that He... That he he knows what they're thinking and feeling, but he, he allows them to just pour out their pain and their confusion and their befuddlement. Jesus was slow to speak and quick to listen. As you and I come alongside one another in this road marked with suffering and death, we are often too quick to speak and slow to listen. People are sharing their grief with us and we so quickly cut in on that conversation and we start talking about ourselves or we start throwing theological band-aid verses on gaping wounds. But something extraordinary that you need to see with these disciples, Jesus walks on the road of suffering with us even when we don't think He is there. Do you see that? Even when we don't think He is there, He's walking this road of suffering with us. From the meeting with Jesus on the road, we go to the message of Jesus in verses 25 to 27. So at a point, He starts to talk. He says to them how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter His glory and then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. I wonder if you've ever had a rebuke from a stranger. Someone you don't know, someone has come up to you and rebuked you. 
If you have, how did you feel? If you were considering it, or thought, think about having one of those, how would you feel? What did you say there, Anderson? Up yours, mate. Okay, there we go. That's pretty much what I had here. Up yours, mate. Um, yeah, it's like, like who the, excuse the pun, who the hell are you, right? How dare you rebuke me? I mean, you don't know my context. You don't know my situation. But Jesus did know them, didn't he? And he knew their context rather well. In fact, here was the dead now living, standing before them, and they didn't recognize him yet. But I don't think the rebuke was like this. Oh, how stupid you are. Oh, what a thick, numb, scold idiot you are. Jesus was gentle and lonely, lowly and He loved His disciples to the end. It was a gentle rebuke. How foolish, how foolish you guys are. You haven't really understood, understood the Scriptures yet the way you, you think you, 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 you do. And, and Guys, you've, you've been so slow to believe all that the prophets and the law has said. Jesus was gentle and lowly and patient with them because Jesus is patient with our slow-heartedness to believe, isn't He? But as Christians, we can sometimes be very reluctant and slow to correct clear error or sin in one another. Sometimes we can be a bit slow on that, can't we? We feel that if we do correct others, well, uh, maybe we'll fear rejection. We'll fear not being loved anymore. We fear getting an angry response. But then sometimes we do correct someone else and we do that in anger, which doesn't help. And then we may even convince ourselves, well, it's actually not very loving to correct anybody anyway. But love does, love does correct, doesn't it? That's what love does. Love does not delight in evil, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 6, but rejoices with the truth. My brothers and sisters, you cannot rejoice in the truth if you do not correct error. And then you see Galatians 6 verse 1, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, you should restore that person. How? Gently. Gently. Let me frame the conversation between Jesus to the disciples. The message from Jesus to the disciples, verse 25 to 27. Let me frame it like this. Here's what he says in the stranger's voice. You boys should not have been shocked that Jesus of Nazareth had to die. You should not have been shocked by what you saw at Golgotha. You should not have been shocked by the woman's testimony that the tomb is empty and he is alive. Why? Because the stranger then explains to them that the whole of the Old Testament is all about the Messiah who had to suffer and die and rise and enter his glory. The stranger then starts to tell them that everything from Genesis written by Moses to Malachi written by Moses is all about the hope in death of the Messiah. In other words, 
the hope of life in the death and resurrection of Messiah is what the Bible is all about. That's what God planned in eternity. This is what God promised in His prophets. In the death of Messiah will come hope in life. In the death of Messiah will come the hope of resurrection. In the sufferings of Messiah will come the hope of glory to all who believe in Him. And so in verse 27, we are told, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all of the Scriptures concerning Himself. How long does it take to walk 11 kilometers? Anybody know? If you go, if you go according to uh, Anderson's pace, it's probably about 25 minutes. Google says, Google says it is about 12 minutes to a kilometer walking. Is that about right? So let's go. 11 kilometers times 12 minutes is 132 minutes. It took about two hours for Cleopas and friend to get from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they got a two-hour sermon from Jesus Christ on the road. You're thankful you're not getting two hours from me this morning. But as Jesus preached for two hours on Himself on the road, showing them all about Himself in the Old Testament. I wonder which passages He took them to. I wonder how many you can get to in two hours. I wonder, for example, I wonder if He took them to 1 Kings 17 where Elijah raises the son from the dead, the widow's son from the dead, to show His resurrection. I wonder whether He went to 2 Kings chapter 4 where Elisha raises a Sunamite son from the dead to show His resurrection. I wonder where He went. But I have no doubt that Jesus took them to this passage in Isaiah 53. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. There's the death. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, death, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, resurrection and glory. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand, resurrection. And after he has suffered death, he will see the light of life and be satisfied, resurrection and glory. You see it? Jesus would have just taken them back right into passage after passage after passage to show them the hope in his death and resurrection, and the hope that comes because Jesus entered His glory. That's the one central message of the Bible. Hope. Hope in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what that means is that Jesus is the redemption of Israel through His death and resurrection. The redemption of Israel does not come by the Israelites or the Jews going back to the land. It does not come by a political state. It does not come by building a third temple. The, resur the, 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 the redemption of Israel is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Both Israel and the world, they are only saved by the darkness of Friday, His death, and the light of Sunday, which is His resurrection. Because that's exactly how Jesus put it to Martha, a woman. In John 11.25, after Lazarus has died, 
Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? From the meeting with Jesus on the road to the message from Jesus on the road, we come now to the meal with Jesus from verse 30. So, <laughs> most people need a nana nap after two hours of preaching. These guys are eager for some more. They get to Emmaus and they want more. They just want to hear more. Something's going on here and they invite this mysterious stranger for a meal. So pick it up in verse 30. So when he was at the table with them, after he'd invited and accepted the invitation, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and suddenly he disappears from their sight. But then they ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? Just notice that they want some more talk. Jesus has finished talking. Okay, he said a few words and saying thanks, but effectively the chat was over. Jesus doesn't say another thing. Have you ever had a meal with someone where you've sat in silence the whole time and not said anything to anyone? Husbands and wives have had a fight. You know that feeling? Uh, I, uh, I, I remember my, my date at my high school ball, year 12, a long time ago now. And it was actually a blind date, of all things. And you know that my blind date never said one word to me the whole evening. I've still got issues about that. Yeah, I know. My wife is counseling me over this issue. Usually what happens when you're invited into someone's home, it's the host that takes the bread, breaks it, and gives it. Jesus reverses the roles. He takes the bread. He gives thanks. He gives it to them. Suddenly, as he breaks bread and gives it to them, their eyes are opened. They see him, and what happens next? They see him, and he is gone. How weird. Why? Here's what you've got to see. The main thing is not that they saw him in the flesh. The main thing is that they saw him in the Scriptures. That's the point. That was not the main thing to see him physically. It was the thing to see him in the Old Testament Scriptures. And we know that because look what happens. After they've seen him flash, move, flash, they ask each other, were not our hearts burning with us, within us when he talked on the, on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? You see, their hearts burned within them when they saw Christ in the Scriptures. As Jesus opened up the signs, the symbols, and the shadows in the Old Testament showed how they point to Him and they saw it, there was a burning of joy and faith that, that was, was lit inside their hearts. So brothers and sisters, when you read this passage and you read this meal with Jesus, it is not a mandate that we are to have communion every week. The mandate is rather 
that we would have a mandate to see Jesus every week in the Scriptures. Because when we do, when you see Christ in the Scriptures, then your heart burns. It burns with joy for Him. It burns with faith in Him. It burns with love for Him. It burns with hope in Him. And it burns with a desire to share Him with others. Take a look how Peter puts it. Peter writing to Christians, he says in 1 Peter 1.8, he says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not believe in Him now, you believe, you don't see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Christians are not people who have seen Christ with their physical eyes. Christians are people who have seen Christ with the spiritual eyes of their hearts. What the Spirit has done is opened up the eyes of the heart of a Christian to see something of the beauty and the wonder of Christ. And my brothers and sisters, if you and I are filled with a joy when we see Christ in the Scriptures, can you only imagine what it's going to be like when you see Him face to face? Have you ever heard this? Or something like this? I would believe in Jesus if I could see Him. Ever heard that? I've heard many times. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told in Luke 16? The parable in Luke 16, Lazarus and the father Abraham go to heaven and the king goes to hell. Remember that? Pick up the story here in verse 27. The king's in hell. Remember, it's a parable, and the king speaks to Father Abraham. He says, I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family, for I've got five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replies, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, no, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Brothers and sisters, if people do not see Christ in the Scriptures, they would not believe in Him even if He was standing right there in front of them physically. The hearts of the disciples burnt with a joyous faith, not when they saw Him with their physical eyes, but with their spiritual eyes. When their eyes were opened to see the Lord of glory in all of the Scriptures. Which takes us then finally to our fourth. The mission for Jesus. So they see Him at the table. Quick flash. Their hearts are burning with faith. And then what happens next? Jesus goes, what do they do next? What do the disciples do? <laughs> it, they, they, pick it up, verse 33. They got up, they returned at once to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them. 
they're all assembled together, and, and as they, you got it, the picture is this actually, as they walk through the door and find the disciples, everybody's going, it's true, it's true, it's true, the Lord has risen, the Lord has appeared to Simon. It's, well, there's a whole gaggle of geese going on, a whole gospel gaggle going on in there. It's crazy, it's going nuts. And somehow, clear passing friend, they get a word in somewhere and sort of go, <laughs> let's, let, let's just tell you about this, this meeting with Jesus, this message with Jesus, this meal with Jesus, and it's all... It's glorious chaos. Who knows what time it was? In the dead of the night, those two haul it back from Emmaus, back to Jerusalem, as fast as they can. And as they all get together, it's all sort of starting to finally dawn. It's true. It's true. <laughs> he has risen. He has, has, has risen. It's true. It's true. It's true. Christ has died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ was buried on Friday according to the Scriptures. Christ was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. Jesus is the redemption of Israel. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is our hope in death because He was raised from the dead. Jesus is our life in death because He was raised from the dead. Jesus is our glory in death because He died and rose and entered His glory. So my beloved, this morning... I want you to know two things, at least. If you are in Christ, would you know today that your suffering will give way to glory because Jesus rose from the dead? There is not one of us here that don't suffer. There's not one. You know today that your suffering will give way to glory because Jesus rose from the dead. And I want you to know, brother and sister, would you know that your death, in Christ your death, will give way to eternal life because Jesus rose from the dead. Christian, in His great mercy, He has given you new birth into a living hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I would dare say here this morning that there may be someone here that's not a Christian. Someone that does not know Jesus. I want to say to you this morning that if that is you, this morning, hope can be your hope. This morning, non-Christian, you can have hope in your suffering. You can have hope in your death because Jesus Christ defeated suffering and death by rising from the grave. The tomb is empty. It is true. It is true. So what's there left for us, Christians? You've got to go on mission. 
What are you going to do? What is it about? Just simply to go and tell people it's what? It's true. It's true. He's alive. And because He is alive, there is hope in suffering and death. That's our gospel. And did I say it's true? It's true. So can I just leave you with these words to ponder as I ask the music team to come up? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life and the one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Just let it go back for a moment. Hope in death because Jesus died and rose again and entered his glory according to the scriptures. That's why, brothers and sisters, we can sing this next song. Blessed be his name when the sun is shining and when it's not. We can say, blessed be his name on the road marked with suffering because suffering and death will give way to life and glory. Would you stand with me?